Before I begin, I want to call attention to the banner on the side of the sanctuary here. Together in spirit and in truth, many thanks uh, to Brittany, our graphic designer, and to William, our, our head of maintenance here, and their crews for putting this together. Putting these things together is not a small task, and I'm very grateful to them. I want to encourage you, as when we finish the service today, if you want to come on by and find your signature. Uh, that's why we put these on the wall, to be a reminder of what it is that we are committing to uh, before the Lord this year, what we have committed to with our signatures here, together in spirit and in truth, God's Holy Spirit binding us together and in God's truth as found in His Word. Speaking of, this is part two of our very brief series entitled How to Know God's Will. In part one, if you missed it, just a very brief overview, we said that the number one way that God reveals His will for our lives is through the Bible. In fact, we put it this way, if you want to learn how to live this life, read the manufacturer's instructions. This book, the Bible, is the owner's manual. God created us. He knows how life works best. He puts instructions in here that we might live life to its fullest in Him. This is the manual. It's the number one way that God reveals His will for our lives. So if you're stuck, if you don't know where to go in life, start here. This is where it begins. Now, I also gave uh, in that part one uh, seven lines of evidence that I believe establish the Bible as a different type of book than any other book on the planet. I'm not going to go through all of those lines of evidence. If you missed part one, I would strongly encourage you to watch it. You can go to pmchurch.org, click on the sermons tab, and you can go to our archive and you can find part one there. Truly, this book is different and above any other book's claim to divinity. There's just nothing like it. We finished part one with a question. If after you have read the specifics of the Bible, and you've taken also the principles of the Bible, and you've tried to apply them to whatever part of your life you're looking for God's will in, and you still don't have an answer, what do you do? Well, good news. God has additional ways that He can help us to know His will. And this morning, I want to share with you three of them. There are more, but we only have time for three this morning. And let's begin with this. If you have a Bible, take a look at James chapter 1, please, verse 5. James chapter 1, verse 5. In James chapter 1... We find uh, some very famous counsels. Some of you may have memorized this text. It is a fairly famous one. Uh, Martin Luther famously said that the, uh, James had a gospel of straw. He didn't have much love for the book of James. I have a lot of love for the book of James, and most of Christianity does too. That's why it's still here. It has some excellent things to say if you are looking for God's will. You've read the Bible. You've applied its principles. You're still not sure what should you do. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks… What's the next word? Wisdom, stop right there. Isn't that what we're looking for if we are looking for God's will in our life? Yeah, it's wisdom, isn't it? We want to know, Lord, what are the next steps? What should I do with this decision or that decision? We want wisdom. So we're in the right spot here. If any of you, the text says, lacks wisdom, he should, what's the next word? Ask. He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Verse 5 again, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, 
who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. A second way to know God's will for your life is through prayer. Start with the Bible and continue with prayer. Now, we have talked quite a bit about prayer in the last few weeks, and this is not a topic that I want to wear out with you. We're going to revisit it later on. Let me just be brief this morning by saying this. No search for God's will is complete without prayer. Even Bible study is not to be done without prayer, for we are to study it only as we ask for God's Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us in doing so. And when we've read the Bible, and yet we are still uncertain as to God's will for us in a specific situation, prayer can and must continue. For it is in prayer that God's Spirit can speak to us. It is in prayer that God can whisper the answer to the problems that plague us. It is in prayer that God can remind us of things we once knew but have forgotten, of resources we once treasured but have now fallen into disuse. Prayer is one of God's greatest agencies for placing the mind of heaven into the minds of humanity here on earth. One of my favorite quotations on prayer outside of Scripture was first printed in a religious publication called The Daily Word. This is back in June 18 of 1952. It's often mistaken as a quotation from Ellen White. And indeed, portions of it kind of sound like Sister White, but this is actually not from her. People also mistake it for a quote from Ellen White because it was printed not once but twice in the Advent Review and Herald magazine, 1953 and 1965. So good was the quote, they had to print it twice. Here in part is what it says. Prayer is the answer to every problem in life. It puts us in tune with divine wisdom, which knows how to adjust everything perfectly. So often, we do not pray in certain situations because from our standpoint, the outlook is hopeless, but nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is so entangled that it cannot be remedied, no habit so deep-rooted that it cannot be overcome. No one is so weak that they cannot be made strong, no mind is so dull that it cannot be made brilliant. Whatever we need, if we trust God, He will supply it. If anything is causing worry or anxiety, let us stop rehearsing the difficulty and trust God for healing, love, and power. If you want answers to life's questions, then study your Bible and pray. It may be that God will reveal His will clearly to you in that way. That's method number two. There is a third method. And while methods one and two are at the top of the list for a very good reason, this third method also has proven to be phenomenally effective. A story. When I was in fifth grade, there was a girl in my class that picked on me. Now, she wasn't pulling me out behind the school and beating me up. I was bigger than anyone else in the class. I never had a growth spurt. I just kind of, just kind of kept going. So it wasn't that kind of a thing. But, but I'd be sitting in class, and she would get a spitwad in a straw and in the back of my neck. What is that? She would get rubber bands and fold over cardstock like this and go like that, hit me in the back of the head. She would find my softball uh, glove. You know, they have cubbies in, in many classrooms, right? So in my cubby, I kept my softball glove. And, and she would, shall we say, reorder things and then put my glove in some other place and I couldn't find it. Well, after a couple of weeks of this, I'm getting frustrated. Like, why is this girl doing this? 
I come home from school and I tell my mom about it. I say, Mom, there's this girl in my class and she, she's throwing, spitting spit wads at me and flicking me with paper and rubber bands and she's stealing my glove. What, what, what am I supposed to do? And she said, I think she likes you. <laughs> now, I thought that was the dumbest thing in the world. What do you mean she likes me? No, no, she hates my guts. That's why she's doing all this stuff, right? Who knows what's going to be next, you know? I don't remember exactly how long it was, maybe a week or two later, sitting in class, little tap on my shoulder. It's one of her female friends that passes me a note. The note has the one who's been picking on me, her name on it. I open it up, and there are three words on it. Any guesses what they were? I like you. I was astonished. Not that she liked me. I mean, I'm not much to look, much to look at right now, but in fifth grade, I was, you know, I mean, ladies falling at my feet there in the fifth and sixth grade classroom, right? So I was not surprised by that at all. What astonished me is how did my mother know? I mean, I spent like 30 seconds telling her about this. She had, she had not been in the classroom ever when this kind of stuff was happening to me. And within 30 seconds, she says, I think she likes you. I was astonished that anyone at her extreme age could know such things. I mean, she was in her 30s. She had one foot in the grave and the other in a pool of WD-40, right? I mean, this is... And yet she knew these things. It was amazing to my fifth grade mind. And a very good illustration of how God reveals his will to us. A third method that God uses to reveal his will for our lives is the counsel of older, wiser Christians. The counsel of older and wiser Christians. Now, this is not just my opinion. It's actually the opinion of the Bible. Let me put this up here on the screen. Job chapter 12, verses 12 and 13 is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are His. Now, notice carefully what God is doing here and inspiring these words to be written. The second verse here. To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding. So, so who owns wisdom and understanding? Okay, God does, right? He is the source of our being. You know, Paul says there, in him we live and move and have our being. If something is true, it's because God is, right? So he owns these things, but notice who holds them for him. Who is it who holds on to his wisdom and understanding? It's the aged and those with long life. Translation. If you are paying attention... And the years begin to add up. God will entrust you with his wisdom and understanding. And those of you that are younger right now may not be sure that this is such a good idea. Like me in fifth grade, wondering about how in the world, you know, would I even you know, pay attention to the advice of this, stunned to find out that it was absolutely right. As it turns out, we need the young and we need the old 
because the experience that those that are older can bring to those that are younger can be transformative. And let me even note this. History tells us that if for some reason the young disregard the genuine wisdom of the old, that the results can be catastrophic. Take your Bible, please, and look at 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings, the 12th chapter, beginning with verse 1. A little history here. If we were to read earlier in 1 Kings chapter 11, we would find that King Solomon has died. Now, even if, if you're not a Christian and you're listening right now, you probably have heard the, the, the term King Solomon. He's a very famous king, one of the two most famous kings of Israel, King David, of course, and King Solomon, his son. Uh, Solomon was known because of the great, incredible things that he built and, and other things, the wisest man who ever lived. He has died now, and his son Rehoboam is being considered for the throne. He's next in line for the throne. If we were to read in chapter 11, we would find that a man by the name of Jeroboam, so Jeroboam and Rehoboam, no relation, Jeroboam receives a message from God through Ahijah the prophet that Rehoboam will not inherit all of Israel, that he will inherit only a portion of it, that the kingdom will be divided. How and why would that come about? 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam... Solomon's son, went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Now pause there, please. Some history here is helpful. King Solomon, because of all the, the, the grand public works projects that he did, taxed the people mercilessly. And he forced them into labor. It was not a full-blown slavery where, where everybody, you know, was just, they never went home. They all lived there on site, etc. But, but yes, it was forced labor. They went in rotations. And the people were sick and tired of it. So, they make this request. Verse 5, Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders. Who did he consult? Okay, the elders. He consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. Ah, this is very important. Not only is Rehoboam hearkening back, trying to show some continuity with his father Solomon, but he is attempting, at least for the moment, to draw on the collective wisdom of these elders. Now, the text doesn't tell us this, so this is just the gospel according to Shane here. I suspect that these elders were well aware of the pain and suffering that Solomon had inflicted on his people. You know, Solomon, smartest man who ever lived, but, but he overstepped. And by the end of his life, he had turned away. He, he was not, his heart was not fully God's. He did not end his reign in a way that was pleasing to God. And somewhere along the line, he became very insensitive to the suffering of his people. These elders undoubtedly know this. And so they thought, okay, great, we can turn the page now. This is the king's son. It's not the king. Maybe he will listen and remove this yoke of servitude. Verse 8, excuse me, verse 7. 
They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is wisdom that's actually far ahead of its time. I I say far ahead of its time. How many times does does that phrase get repeated in political circles today? Probably not very often, okay? And, And really, we don't have it too many times in the Old Testament, but these elders were showing extraordinary wisdom because they were actually foreshadowing what Jesus would say hundreds of years later in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These elders, hundreds of years prior to Christ saying this, I mean, the the, the wisdom that is being offered here. What does Rehoboam the young do with the wisdom of the old. Verse 8. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young man who had grown up with him replied, Tell these people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And the result, verse 16 When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. And they not only went home, this instead was the official beginning of the divided kingdom. Israel was no longer one. It separated officially that day. The seeds of it had been brewing, but this was the final straw. Israel became the northern kingdom. Judah became the southern kingdom. And both kingdoms eventually fell deeper and deeper into idolatry. Generations of evil came that day in part spurred on by Rehoboam's fateful decision to ignore the experience of the older in favor of the devastating counsel of the younger. Now, I want to be clear about something. The point of Scripture here and elsewhere is not that all of those that are younger have no wisdom, nor that all of those who are older are necessarily wise. I have met a number of 80-year-olds who did not make very good use of their eight decades, Nor is the Bible saying that just because someone is older than we are that we should take their advice. But for those of you that are younger, don't let those admissions fool you. When you engage with older people and they bring you godly wisdom, take it. Take it. 
Apply it to your life. You would be foolish to ignore it. You know, so much of life's wisdom from God comes through our mistakes. Why try to make all the mistakes yourselves when you can learn from the manifold mistakes of others? Those of you that are younger, not as many amens from the older folk, but they know exactly what I'm talking about, all right? Because often it's in those contexts, when we mess up, when we make mistakes, that we learn the wisdom from God, right? You don't have to make all those mistakes yourselves. Learn from those who have gone before you. You see, here's the thing. When the Bible speaks about spiritual gifts, it says that that God gives spiritual gifts to the church just as he sees fit. I tend to think that when God looks at the age range of a church, he often does the same thing. In other words, younger people, and I'll let you decide where the cutoff is between younger and older, all right? I'm not going to get into that. If you are younger and you're sitting right here in this congregation right now, I want you to know you are surrounded by some very wise people. There are older people here that care about you. They long for you to be in the kingdom. They are so glad that you are here this morning. And God has put you within their sphere of influence. You may not have even met them formally yet, but they're sitting nearby to you. And God has put them here to be of help and assistance to you. They love you. They care about you. They're paying for this place. Some of them are even paying for your tuition. They long for you to know Jesus Christ as your personal friend and Savior. And if you have a need, if you are not understanding what God's will is for your life, ask them. Ask them. You know, I'm very glad that we have individual ministries for certain ages. I'm glad we have a class for our our five-year-olds and a class for the early teen and and Sabbath school class for collegiates and adults. It's all, all of these things. I'm glad for that. And it is so important that we never, ever forget that one of God's dreams for His church is that we do cross-generational ministry as much as we possibly can. The old need the young. The young need the old. Everybody in between. We need each other. This is one of the reasons I'm so excited about Belong Ministry, you know, our new outreach ministry to our university students. It's a golden opportunity for, for those of you that are older to become engaged with our university students, to build relationships, to give them good food, to send them cash and loaves of bread, and along the way to build relationships where someday they may ask you, help me understand about this. And you can share the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding that God has given to you with your years. So God reveals his will to us for our lives through his word, the Bible, number one, through prayer, through the wisdom of older and wiser Christians, and a fourth method. If you have your Bible, please, again, look at Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Acts, the 16th chapter, verse 6. You know, Acts is, of course, short for Acts of the Apostles. Probably should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That may be more accurate. It's the story of the Holy Spirit filling the apostles and and the early believers in the Christian church and how the beginnings of the Christian church came to be. The church planting movement that Christianity would become in the first century A.D., it starts here in the book of Acts. It blossoms out there. The Apostle Paul was kind of at the head of that church planting ministry train. The Apostle Paul, he wrote more than half of the 27 books in the New Testament. And here we're going to read a short little snippet of how Paul discerned the will of God. Acts 16, beginning with verse 6. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, 
having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, time out for just a moment. Don't we normally talk about the Holy Spirit empowering people to preach in certain places? I mean, we, we as, a, as, a, as a Christian church in general, we, we, often, we, we don't often suffer from preaching the gospel too much. We have the opposite problem. And yet here, the Spirit is explicitly stopping the preaching of the gospel. What, what is that about? Verse 7, when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Strike 2. Verse 8, so they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That is one of the more bizarre passages in the book of Acts, and I find it to be fascinating. Follow me carefully here. Had God asked Paul to preach, for instance, in Bithynia, yes or no? Do I need to read the text again? <laughs> okay, the answer is no. Okay, the answer is no. I'll, I'll, we'll do cliff notes here, right? There was a story, he went, no. Okay, got it. God had not asked Paul to preach in Bithynia. But notice carefully, there's also no record that at first God forbade going to Bithynia either. In other words, Paul and his group, they start going to Bithynia. In other words... Paul did not have specific instructions from God as to where to preach next. But that did not stop Paul from trying to go there because God had already given the general instruction, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Paul, not knowing God's specific will, used the best wisdom he had and chose a place to go. And on that journey, God revealed his specific will to Paul. Hmm. A fourth method that God uses to reveal his will for our lives to us is this. Do what you know to do and God will reveal his specific will along the journey. In other words, experiment. Well, not a single amen on that, and I'm not surprised, right? Because experiment, that makes us nervous, doesn't it? I mean, surely this, oh, hold, hold on, Pastor Shea, that sounds a little, little dangerous there. Are you sure you want to say that? Yes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Follow me carefully here. Too often, many well-intended, committed Christians say, in essence, when faced with a decision in their life, they're searching for God's will, they say, in essence, I'm not moving a muscle until God appears in a vision and tells me specifically what I should do. And you know what? Sometimes that's the right thing to do. You know, in my decades of pastoral ministry, I've sat on a lot of committees, you know, conference committees, executive committees, school boards, academy board. And there have been some of those meetings where given the gravity of the decision that we needed to make and given the consequences if we got it wrong, 
Indeed, we essentially said, we will not make a decision until we have a clear, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes there are situations that calls for that response. For the other 99.5% of times in life, for the vast majority of life's questions, how do I schedule my time this week? Uh, should we make this purchase or not? Should I attend that seminar or class next semester or not? Etc., etc. These are questions that more often than not, God longs for us to know His Word sufficiently and to be people of prayer sufficiently and to have learned the counsel of generations before us sufficiently that we become, key word here, mature, wise, that we become trusted, mature, wise, free, moral agents in the world, faithfully knowing and doing God's will to the best of our ability. C.S. Lewis, in a book called The World's Last Night, at the end of a chapter called The Efficacy of Prayer, he wrote this. He said, prayer is not a machine. It is not magic. It would be even worse to think of those who get what they pray for as a sort of court favorites, people who have influence with the throne. The refused prayer of Christ in Gethsemane is answer enough to that. There is instead a mystery here which even if I had the power, I might not have the courage to explore. Meanwhile, little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. In other words, thinking we are somehow God's favorites. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate posts in the great battle. In other words, sometimes God's silence is a vote in your favor. And could it be that one of the reasons that we're still on this planet right now is because there are too many of us that wanted to be treated by God as though we were three years old rather than 30. God is looking for people to take these posts of great danger and great impact. But he will not send someone who is not sufficiently mature to take it. Let us be clear. God is not looking for us to become disconnected from him. That is not the definition of maturity. A thousand times, no, no, no. But he most certainly is looking for us to become more like him, to have his image restored in us in mature biblical fashion. You know, Sister White is explicit about this. Uh, January 27 of 1890 in an article from Signs of the Times entitled, The Most Effective Agent for God. I'd like to know what that is, the most effective agent for God. Here's what she says in part. Let the people go to work. This is people in a church, in a congregation. Let them thank God for the encouragement they have received and then make it manifest that it has wrought in them a good work. Let each member of the church be a living, active agent for God, both in the church and out of it. We must all be educated to be, what's that next word? Ah, look at that. Independent, not helpless and useless. The members of the body of Christ have a part to act and they will not be accounted faithful unless they do act their part. Let a divine work be wrought in every soul until Christ shall behold his image in his followers. Now, those of you that have had experience with the spirit of prophecy, you recognize that last phrase, don't you? And when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then, you know, the end will come. Jesus will return. 
We see this repeatedly in various forms in, in Sister White's writings. And I think too often when we have read this phrase, we have seen it as, how could I put it, character sitting still. I'll just sit here and be good, right? That's what, that's what she means by this phrase. I would gently suggest to you that this call to have Christ's image reflected in his followers, that we need to cease thinking of it in stagnant terms and instead realize that what she's pointing out here is, is totally biblically solid, that character and action are intimately intertwined. In fact, you cannot separate them. God is looking for mature followers that are mature and able to both know his will and carry it out even in the absence of new specific revelation from God. It's dangerous being a committed Christian, isn't it? God never intended it to be 100% safe, did he? You see, we're always safe in his arms. He will always take care of us. But when it comes to ministry, God asks us to take risks. He asks us to do the best with what we have. Let me just sum this up here. If you have studied the Bible... If you have spent extensive time in prayer, if you have consulted older, wiser Christians, and yet you still do not have the answers that you need, then I think the Bible is clear. Do what you know to do. In full harmony with biblical principles, not being reckless or random, but in keeping with the best you know of God's general will, do what you know. In essence, experiment. Use divine experimentation. Take some risks if necessary. And along the journey, if we are listening, God will reveal His will. He will stop us if we need stopping. He will redirect us if we need redirecting. And we can go forward in full confidence that God will guide and bless us when and how he wishes. His providence will open the way. All of which brings us to a very important point. What if we do all four of these methods and we still don't know what God's will is in a specific situation that we need to have, we feel we need to have an answer to. What if we go on not just for weeks or months, but years without hearing the answer that we're looking for? What about the stories that we've heard of some people who went to the grave not getting the answers to their questions? What then? You're not going to like my answer. The answer is, that's another sermon. (laughs) Yeah. That is too important of a question to try to answer in the brief moments that we have left here now. So we will get to that sometime in the future. We we will get to that. So keep coming back. We'll we'll, we'll get to that good good question, good answers. But for now, I will say this. Generally speaking... God does want to answer our requests for a knowledge of his will for us. By far, he does. And again, by far, the cause for us not knowing God's will just generally does not lie in God, it lies in us. How often have we wished to know God's will for thus and such, but because we have not accessed these simple methods for gaining that knowledge, we do not know what God wants. So my appeal to all of us is this. Take full advantage of the journey that God has provided for us. Let's use these simple tools that God generally utilizes to make his will known to our, in our lives. Study your Bible. Learn and live what it says. 
Pray daily, both speaking to God's ear and listening for God's voice. Seek the counsel of older, wiser Christians. There is a treasure trove of wisdom waiting for you there. And seek always to grow, to grow in Christ, to learn his ways, to become mature and to act as he would act even in the absence of a fresh revelation. We can know God's will. May we be satisfied with nothing less.